Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully it's not your last. Spacefaring researchers disturb an ancient horror. An enchanted object curses a grieving widow. A haunted reel torments a film student. A murder trial hinges on a chilling testimony. Howls from Hell. A new horror anthology from Hal Society Press. Stephen Graham Jones calls it quality horror by true believers who can write. With a foreword by Grady Hendrix, Howls from Hell unveils the horror writers of tomorrow with spine-tingling stories from P.L. McMillan, Shane Hawk, J.W. Donnelly, Lindsay Ragsdale, Amanda Nevada DeMille, and others. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook from Amazon and most other major booksellers. Howls from Hell. Welcome to Deadhead Space, a part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock in Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're joined by writer and illustrator Kat Scully. Say hi, Kat. Hey, everyone. Nice to meet you. You too. Well, we I have met you. I don't know why I said that. So, real quick. <laughs> that was the equivalent of uh, telling your server to enjoy their meal, man. <laughs> and also you. Thank you. It's like when they go to the movie theater and they're like, enjoy the movie. And I'm like, yeah, you do too. <laughs> and I go, wait. <laughs> Audio listeners won't be able to see this, obviously, but you're sure it's awesome. What? Wow. Just describe it real quick because it's, it's so favorite. I'm wearing a dusky lavender dress with black and white illustrations on them by the illustrator Brett Manning, who's one of my favorite illustrators. And she did this dress of all these little witchcraft elements from Salem. So there's like the witch house, um, a tree, there's a goat, there's a devil, there's cemetery, there's a bunch of different houses. I love this dress. I got it from Die With Your Boots On, but Brett Manning also has a Etsy shop. And her stuff goes really fast, so it's good to follow her and be sure that you're right there when she launches. So Instagram is the best place to know when she's going to launch her dresses. Yeah, that's really, that's really, really cool. Um, we'll talk more about you in Boston area later on, but... Uh, before we do that, let's talk about what got you into horror. What got me into horror? Um, I know, I say that probably, word weird. 
I do. I always do. They're like, they are, what are you saying? Horror? Horror? And I'm like, I have a Southern accent. I'm sorry. It comes out sometimes on certain words. And one of them is horror. And I say like horror, like not even the, the way you should say it. But <laughs> I got into it probably because in the second grade, my teacher thought it was a good idea to show the latest movie that had come out at the time to her class. And that was The Nightmare Before Christmas. And it was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> this, is what I, this is me. This is who I am inside, like this movie. And I, I became obsessed with it because at that time, it was like 1992. It was brand new. Um, and I was so excited to see something that was that delightfully gothic for children. Um, and then around the second grade, I got into Benicula as well. And my mom got a call from home that was like, you know, your daughter seems to think Benicula is real. And she's basically doing a dissertation in class on how the vampirism could work <laughs> with vegetables. Maybe you want to tell her that Benicula is not a real rabbit. And I was like, no, I was arguing how it could be possible and the detective work that was going on here between this cat and dog and this rabbit. And I had this thesis about it at seven. So that's, that's where all of this started. I'd say it was just kind of who I was my whole life. Um, my family's not super into horror. Uh, so I had to sneak it in high school. My boyfriend and I would rent blockbuster videos and bring them back to his house. Um, and I just got whatever I could at the time that had come out then, like Queen of the Damned, uh, Dog Soldiers, Hellboy, uh, what was out at that time also, Underworld, anything that was like that early 2000s horror. That's what I was sneaking back with my boyfriend. So, um, And I had another high school teacher show me Army of Darkness as credit <laughs> for class. So it was just my teachers were handing it to me, you know, like. And I was just happily devouring it. I had a crush on Kate Beckinsale. Oh, yeah. It's very From, easy to have a crush on Kate Beckinsale in those movies. I'm like, yes. She's perfect. <laughs> Brendan, go ahead, buddy. Perfect. You know, you mentioned Army of Darkness, and that's a perfect jumping off point. Uh, you have this love-love relationship with the evil dead. What, um, what is it about that that you know, really draws you in? What's, what's special about that? Yeah, I think at, at this point, if you know me or even vaguely know me, you know how much I love Evil Dead because I'm constantly yelling about it. And it's mostly what drew me in was this idea. When I was in college, I had um, this is going to sound off topic, but it is on topic. I had a professor who in my very first freshman creative writing class said, write whatever you want. And I was like, what does that mean? And I went and much to his delight, wrote about two occult detectives who were fighting a death goddess in the meat warehouse. And I turned that in for my assignment. <laughs> Everyone's writing like light fiction or fantasy. I'm over here writing about flying meat. And yeah, that was. <laughs> so I think it was at that point I started to go, maybe I could submit something because my teacher actually thinks this is really good. But I thought there was this wall there of like, people who were in and like authors and filmmakers and artists were these on these pedestals and they were on this other side. And I didn't know how to get to the other side and also be a pro. And I saw evil dead and I went, that was just a bunch of friends who went into the woods and made a movie. They did not care 
that there was this wall I, I was supposedly saying. They didn't care that, that that was happening. They're like, we're just going to make this for real. We're going to go knock on doors, go to businesses, get the funding. And I was like, why do I think that there's this wall there? Like, why can't I also be professional and submit my work? Like, why... Why do I think I can't do it? I would get so nervous and have such bad imposter syndrome. So the reason Evil Dead means a lot to me is it makes me think about imposter syndrome and getting over it and just making something in the woods with your friends. And for me, that's become illustrating my friends' books, working on video games with my friends, um, writing the type of books and illustrating the type that I want to write. But I'm very collaborative. And when I was a sophomore um, going to a junior I realized I really wanted to do something with film something with tv and I started taking screenwriting classes and I was out in the woods with my friends making movies like just horror movies fantasy movies just sometimes I was the script supervisor sometimes I was the director of photography and I was like there really is no this wall that it doesn't it's getting a chance putting in the hard work and it's like luck and timing and getting the funding and just you keep trying and doing it again and again so you get success so every time I hit these imposter syndrome malls I'm like no those guys did it I can do it too I love that the way you phrase that as a wall um it's definitely applicable to any genre but i feel like there's definitely a kind of a punk rock mentality with horror like a there's no reason that i can't write a book there's no reason i can't write a story there's no reason that i can't make a movie fuck it let's go um that's that's i i love that answer because it's not just oh i saw it and it's a good memory um it's it's important to you because it you know, kind of it really inspired you as a creator. That's excellent. So going forward from there, you mentioned, you know, one of your first experiences was um, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, so that's, and then that totally explains the horror, that explains the illustration, that explains uh, pretty much everything. So what, as far as a creator, what bug bit you first? What bug hit you hardest, writing or uh, illustration? 1000% illustration. Um, I really didn't get into my head that I was going to do anything with writing until uh, my parents basically offered me a ride, like a college ride. Uh, my grandparents and my parents got money together so that I could go to college and afford it without debt. And I thought that was a tremendous gift. But they were really concerned that like, I would go and get this degree and get an art degree and be an illustrator and I'd not be able to get a job on the other side of it. So they were like, pick something else. We know you want to do art. We know how much it means to you, but like, can you find something else you want to do? So that way you just have something that if the drawing doesn't pan out, you can um, do that. So I, this is going to sound hilarious, but I was torn between how much I loved my writing classes and my physics classes. <laughs> Like of all the most random things, I was really good at engineering. I was good at, um, I actually won an award in high school for engineering and I had straight A's in physics. I just liked being creative more. Um, so I ended up being a writing major and I got into screenwriting because there was only one guy at my college who taught fiction, like how to write novels. And he said, I'll teach you anything you want so long as it's not fantasy or genre fiction. 
And I went, oh, no, that's all I want to do. I don't want to write literary fiction. And at the time, I was really angry about that. And I was like, oh, the injustice. Why can't why can't he teach me genre fiction? Why can't I do what I want to do? I thought that was the deal because I had other teachers who were all about it. And I didn't realize until later that, like, when I started, uh, I was a Pitch Wars mentor, which is a contest where you help querying writers find agents and um, who are otherwise struggling to break in. I didn't realize until I started working with these other genres, I don't normally write, but I went, oh, I have no idea how to teach that. And that's like basically all he was saying was like, I have no idea how to do any of that. No offense. I just don't know how to write a very consistent fantasy novel. So I went and hung out with the film kids. I hung out with the screenwriter kids. And that's where I found my home until I graduated. And I wrote the script that was a TV pilot that later became the Jennifer Strange series. So it all was this interesting thing, building on a thing, building on a thing throughout my whole writing career that I just sort of feel like I tumbled into writing. I really didn't expect I was going to do that. I thought I was just going to be an illustrator. But when I got down to doing it all the time, I really loved making things up and writing them down. So I thought that was pretty great. Um, but even like in my mind, I always think I'm an artist first and then a writer second, because I even like draw my novels or if I get stuck, I draw a scene. If I don't know exactly what I want to happen or I draw the characters. And when I see the characters on the page and I go, Oh, that's what they would do. That's how they would act. That's their quirk or their mannerisms or the clothes that they'd wear. So drawing is always this intimate part of my process. So I'm this very weird multimedia writer, I suppose, but I think it's a lot of fun and people love seeing my drawings, my basically Guillermo del Toro notebooks full of writing notes and drawing notes and monsters. And like, um, I don't know, I have a lot of fun with it. Now I'm starting to lean into how weird that is because I don't see a lot of people doing that. And it, it is fascinating and fun to watch how the work grows because of the art. That's awesome, though. I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember. I, I remember hearing another author who works a little bit in that manner, uh, but I don't. I don't think he necessarily. I'm thinking of John Langan. I'm pretty sure. Hopefully, that's right. But uh, I believe that he, you know, kind of pushes his stories forward by, you know, doing the illustrations to kind of see what happens next. Um, but I don't think they're as kind of tied in as your work would be. Um, and, it, you know, kind of related, but um, it reminds me, my older son, um, when he was in first or second grade, he was at, you know, the, the whole reading comprehension piece where he would have to read something and then respond to it. It just didn't click for him. He, what he had to do was read it, draw a picture of it, and then write about the picture uh, and without that middle piece, he just he couldn't make the entire process happen. Um, and that's, you know, from my point of view, that's immediately what I thought of is that way that art ties into words. And it's kind of like a almost like a duality of storytelling. I love that you brought up your son because like that's such an important like when you're young, there's all these clues there that you don't sort of realize until later. So it's going to be interesting when he's a bit older, like looking back, I don't know how old he is now, but like looking back and seeing, oh, wait, that worked for him. And now he can use that creatively because 
I didn't realize when I was about seven and eight that I've been doing this process all along because what I would do is build these entire Lego cities. I'd leave them perfect in my room. And then I would write out all the character sheets and the world maps of the intricate things that were going on in this town that I had built. And it was basically being a writer with Legos. (laughs) It was exactly that. So I think it's interesting what kids do and how they play having two kids of my own going, oh, I see your creative process. That's so interesting and fascinating to me. So I don't ever try to influence it. I don't try to touch it. I'm just like, no, let's evolve what it is you're doing because it's so interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, he's he's 10 now. He was in first or second, I think first grade, when we really discovered that that was uh, part of his process, I suppose. And we've you know used it ever since. And even now he writes little stories, uh, but he never starts them until he's drawn up a cover, um, which is absolutely the opposite of how I work. I can't, I need like something fully fleshed out in text before I can even think of what it looks like. So I don't know where he got that from, but, um, so I, I'm, I think it's interesting that you talk about how it could evolve and that's how I've seen it evolve. Um, he's more comfortable with words than he ever was when he was younger, but, the art piece is still is still so crucial, and I think if you take that away, I don't think the words work anymore. Yeah, I can relate to that deeply, uh, especially the whole drawing the cover first. I did that for Jennifer Strange book two already. I was like, oh, this is the cover idea. This is these are the drawings. Okay, now I'm going to plot the entire novel. Now I'm going to write down all of the chapters beat for beat. Then I'm going to write the book last. <laughs> so it's completely visual first. And then physically writing it at the very end step. So I want to jump back. You said you uh, something to do with engineering. Um, is that a career that you were thinking about pursuing when you were younger? I'm sorry, what career? Did I mishear you earlier? You talked about an uh, engine, something to do with engineering. Yes, I didn't want to be an engineer. I was just really good at it. Uh, My dad was an engineer. His dad was an engineer. And I think my brother and I both were born with that brain. Like we could just do it. Mm. So I was really good at 3D modeling in high school. I just knew how to do it. I would look at it, take one look at it and be like, oh, it works this way. Um, It works that way. Uh, I think it's just genetic. Like some things just get passed down. Because now I look at Unreal Engine, I'm like, oh, it does that, it does that, it does that. I totally get it. Um, there are certain things, more nuanced things, like I'm not sure what exactly this button does, but I can figure it out. Um, and it's just a genetic trait of some sort, I think, because it was very weird that I would go into engineering classes and be like, oh, I got this and be done. And like barely have to study. And I was like, this is the weirdest thing because... This is actually very, very hard work, and it takes a lot of effort. So I had, like, abysmal grades in math, but as soon as you put me in math for physics, straight A's. It was bizarre. What kind of engineering? Was it just, like, mechanical engineering? or? Yeah, basically anything to do with not necessarily mechanical. I'm trying to think of the type of engineering it would be, but anything with building, anything with modeling, anything with um, – Force and nature, inertia, uh, kinetic energy, momentum. I was especially good at optics, uh, which are, to me, all these things overlap with art. 
or with animation. Like you have to know the force of something when it hits the ground to trick people into thinking the ball is bouncing. You have to know light in order to be able to illustrate. That's like the biggest thing I had to master to illustrate was source of light and how does light bounce off an object. So it all overlaps strangely. I went to, um, had I stayed in Massachusetts, I, I was going to go to school and get a, I got a degree in computer electronics, but I was going to go for a computer uh, electronics engineering in that field. And the math is just so, so fucking hard for me. It's so hard, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that I could do calculus and uh, like, uh, and, and then in the second it's applied to an equation where it's like a practical, I'm like, oh my God, and I figure it out. I don't know what my brain does or why. <laughs> so one of my favorite people in history ever is like, to me, the smartest human ever. And he was a master at art. He was a master at uh, engineering. Uh, that was Leonardo da Vinci. And he, I, one of these documentaries I saw on him was he had this fabric lined up in this dark room. He had these candles and he was just drawing the shades of, of light, how it hit these objects. And, I mean, like you gotta. It it it's two different art forms, but they're they hold hands, and once you get them, you just nail it. I can't draw hands to save my life, for example. I mean, I, my brain just does not work. I see it, but it looks like little hot dogs coming out of like. A... <laughs> I'm pretty sure mine also look like hot dogs. That's part of why I love drawing claws more. That's like so much easier. <laughs> they're very so, sharp uh, and they're long. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump from uh to you're from georgia originally right i am i'm from atlanta mm-hmm. and uh yeah we got a few friends from there shout out to brie morgan and uh my buddy luke truen and uh oh hey chris uh oh, i'm gonna drop the ball on his last name composer yeah thank you so many campbells yeah they're all from atlanta so that's cool but uh now you live in the boston area what why did you move from there to Boston? They're both pretty big in uh, our industry, Atlanta and Boston. So there's actually a bunch of reasons I moved up specifically to Boston. Um, the first being that I got an internship when I was in college at Cartoon Network, and I started working in post-production houses. And then when AT&T bought Turner, a lot of the little post houses started drying up. Uh, like one of the ones I interned at and went and visited that made commercials for Cartoon Network at this little post-production house now does audiobooks. It's like gone. I'm glad they're doing audiobooks because, hey, book industry. But, you know, all the places that Cartoon Network would send their work out of house stopped getting work and they started pulling all the work in-house because of the way all the new structure was. And so I went, okay, what I know how to do and what I want to do is motion graphics for my day job. I love it so much. Like that was my favorite thing in the world. I went, I can't find work. And then my husband who um, does a lot of coding, like front end UX, couldn't find work. Um, they would turn him over. They'd hire whole teams and then let the whole team go every three to six months. So we went, I don't think this is sustainable. And then my son was finally the straw that broke the camel's back because at four years old, he was reading cat, dog, bird. And then he started reading middle grade books. He completely left over picture books. He completely left over chapter books 
So he just started reading straight up thick middle grade novels on his own and just flew through them. I've seen my son read a full middle grade book in 30 minutes. And I went, oh no, oh no. And then he went to kindergarten and went, he was Matilda. He was like, I already know all of this. And they literally did to him what they did to Matilda in the book. They were like, here's some books, sit in the corner. We don't know how to teach you. And we got into this huge, you know, argument with the school where the school's hands were tied because of Georgia law. Like they said, well, we can't really advance him. We're not, we can't do that. We have to have something where, you know, he shows merit to move to the next grade. And he was getting into fights at school because they did not like, he did not like saying they're not doing anything all day. It kind of estranged him from the other kids. They started butting heads and then, they were like, oh, well, he can't move up a grade because he's fighting. And I was like, he's fighting because he's bored and because the other kids don't like that he's so different. They don't know what to do with him either. And because you've pushed him to the side, like, he doesn't know what to do and he feels very lonely. So we went, okay, we got to move somewhere else. And we were talking about it for a while. And I had a lot of friends out of Massachusetts, like, from... Uh, basically Camp Nikon, which used to be in Rhode Island. Now it's in Massachusetts when the pandemic is over and it's all safe. We're going to have it in Massachusetts. Um, And I met all these friends there. They were so great. And they told me about the job market up here. They told me about the schools up here. And I went, oh my gosh, it's checking off boxes for me, for my husband, for my son. We're going to get the support we need for all three of us. My daughter at that point was three years old. So she hadn't really showing any signs of needing anything, but I was like, she'll, she'll love it, I'm sure. And so we went, okay, we're going to do it. And my husband got a job and we moved up here and it was everything I hoped and more. I absolutely love it up here. Um, like I just, I love my friends, my community, my son is happy and like, I've never seen him so happy. Everybody loves the fact he's smart, that he reads so much. The librarians love him because he checks out like 20 books at a time. Uh, and just flies through them all. So we've just found our home. It's really great. We love it. Like, I can't say enough good things about having moved here and how good a decision that was. It is a great state. Minus the snow. (laughs) Oh, I'll take the snow. It's worth it for, like, helping my son out, you know? Yeah, that's fair. That's why I moved. Two huge reasons. The snow and the real estate. I just... I don't know. It was too much for me, but I, I love it up there. That's where I'm from. Um, so we're probably jumping way ahead, but before we do so, Brennan, is there anything you want to talk about? I kind of want to dive into the Cartoon Network thing. That's really neat. But- yeah, I was going to go there if if uh, if you weren't, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw out a quick Massachusetts represent. <laughs> and, and, and real quick side note, uh, my wife and I brought our son to Lancaster last month and uh there's a cartoon network hotel and we're like we gotta stay there next time what i have to go i love cartoon network like so much i love that i have two huge like there's a lot of shows i loved in the 90s but um this might be early aughts for all i i I didn't do my homework but one cartoon network show that i loved was courage a cowardly dog it's so it's hard yes from the very first episode, it's, it's so creepy, and I love it. So I love it, too. How'd you get involved with Cartoon Network? 
Oh my gosh. I was lucky for real. <laughs> okay. So everyone who had been picked as an intern knew somebody who knew somebody or their family was in or whatever. I was a cold resume and I got in and I, I was just shocked that I went there every day as an intern and it was the best thing ever. I wanted to go back. Um, but that was 2008. And you know what happened in 2008, 2009, they had a hiring freeze that has been there ever since. So they wanted to hire me out of college and they couldn't. So I started working at some post-production houses and still got to work actually with my old department, which was the Latin America division of Cartoon Network and Boomerang. So I was helping them make commercials. I was training in After Effects. Um, I had just the best time. And then um, we stopped getting as much work and they switched over to VR for a while. And I was like, I still want to do... I still want to do commercials. I would write them. I would storyboard them. Um, so that's where my screenwriting came in. I did a lot of commercial writing, not just for Cartoon Network Boomerang, but a lot of different properties. Um, I did one for Marta, which is our train in Atlanta. Uh, just started writing a ton of commercials. And then when I moved up here, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do, but I was trying to find an After Effects job. And I worked for Harvard Business Review, which was a wonderful position for three months, um, I worked on Snapchat, animating for them. But Snapchat wasn't super viable, so we ended up like folding how many designers that we needed. And that was around the time I got locked up to work in video games. So I've kind of all hopped adjacently um, on the design side of things, trying to make my way through, but always wanting to animate basically at the core. It's just animate, Getting to do that, work with typography, work with um, design, work with drawing characters, that was the core that's always stayed since my Cartoon Network days. Speaking of uh, video games, uh, I am mostly clueless about video games, but I'm very curious what a user interface designer does. Okay, so you play a game, right? You've played one at all? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You know how you have to know your health bar, your magic bar, your, your map, um, your inventory. That's what I do. That's what I work on. Basically, your heads up display is your user interface designer. So it's all of my skills with After Effects. After Effects animates basically any commercial text across the screen, uh, water splashing, fire. Basically, if you see smoke coming out of somebody's mouth that's after effects and what we found is that it, there's a direct translation between what i would do for commercials and what i was training to do over there with a portion of our unreal engine called umg and what umg is it's an animation over a timeline like you put in keyframes you tell it to move here get big get small go invisible turn on turn off turn a different color and, and that's that's what I do. So if you decide, oh, hey, I need to check my inventory. I do that little display. I do all the little icons. So if we're talking Bioshock terms, it would be like that moment where you're like, wait, I need to switch vigors. I need to switch which one. And then that little HUD element pops up. That's my job. So what kind of considerations go into that? I mean, obviously, it would depend on the game, but... 
how much say do you get in, you know, the overall design of it, kind of the aesthetics, I, I guess I would say? Well, the creative director and the art director are typically the ones who decide, you know, what's the look and feel? And that all has to do with the story. You know, what's the core story and how can we get that to be fun and playable? And I mean, the word is gamification, but it's honestly way more than that. It's more fun. It's more, how can I put you in this world where you feel like you are there with these elements? The way you draw a map says a lot about the type of world you're in, the same way it does when you're picking up, picking up a book, you open it and you see the map or you see the designs, you're like, I am entering X type of world. I, as the user, have this expectation based off the art. So what goes into our planning is what is user expectation? How do they make decisions? How quickly do they need to be able to reach for their bullets, for their magic potions, for their, um, spe- like I'm thinking of Zelda, uh, where you have to have different ingredients in order to climb faster. How fast can I get to those things and to the, the inventory I've crafted? So that's what goes into it is how do people make decisions and what do they want? When do they want it? What's most important? What's least important? You know? And so there's a lot of UX user experience that goes into deciding those things of like and testing people coming back and saying, this wasn't working for me or I couldn't get to this quick enough. And then we go back and redesign it again because you have to have real people say, hey, this was easy to use or not. Because sometimes we as designers can make assumptions that we think were great. And then the second we play test them, they don't at all. And other times things work better than we thought. Like, like, I don't know that that's really going to work. And then it totally does. So we don't really know sometimes until someone actively plays it. It would be basically like you come up with an idea for a board game. You think these things are going to work, but the second someone sits down and is like, how do I play Monopoly? That's where you really get your best feedback of like, that's the gold real people really playing all this did this lead to working with bill and amanda gardner yes well no they found me (laughs) for those that don't know who either one of those are would you mind giving just a quick or long however you want uh description of them absolutely so amanda gardner is amazing she wrote the video game perception And I've actually known her in the publishing industry for a while. I've been around in the publishing industry maybe about eight years doing maps. And I met her because we were both Pitch Wars mentors. We were both trying to help people who wanted to break in and get an agent. And she was mentoring adult. I was mentoring, I think, middle grade at the time. And, you know, we knew of each other. We became Facebook friends and... When she found out I moved up to Boston, Amanda came to one of my panels because I was on there with one of the Deep End games, um, the game that she runs with her husband, Bill Gardner, like their studio. I was on there with Reiko Murakami. And Reiko is the most incredible. I don't know if you've seen her work, but look her up if you haven't seen. Um, And I was the moderator and I was talking about animation walk cycles and Amanda later told me that's what intrigued her to want to go hey wait a second maybe Kat could do games and so I was talking with Reiko and Amanda after the panel and Amanda 
was saying something about how fun it was to work in video games. And I was like, oh man, I wish I could do that. Well, would you like to? I was like, what? <laughs> okay, uh, how do I apply? And she said, yeah, we'll talk about it. So what's your favorite video game? And I said, Bioshock. And she went, huh, interesting. I went home and I looked up the Deep End games and I freaked out when I found out her, who her husband was. That he worked on Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite. Now he runs the Deep End games. And I went, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Oh man, I got to work there. I got to work there. And so I went through this process of um, pitching myself with them. I wrote up and drew a bunch of different tests. I submitted my portfolio. I went over to their house. Um, I brainstormed a couple of video game ideas I had, having absolutely no experience in gaming. And like they were trying to figure out where they would place me because I could do a lot of different things. I can animate, I design, like where would I fit? And they decided to just use all of what I can do. And primarily put me in uh, user interface design because it was directly exactly like what I had been doing in After Effects for commercials. So that's how I ended up there. And I've been there almost two years as of this July. And it's so crazy to me because that was that's my favorite game. I played Bioshock one through three and Burial at Sea every Christmas. Like every Christmas I would play those games. I have played them maybe 20 times, like because I then go back and play it six months later in the summer. Like I'll play it <laughs> twice a year. So I know everything about those games. And I was like, this is the craziest thing that I'm now working with the art director who worked on the Big Daddy. I'm now working with Lita Tang, who was the technical director on Bioshock. Like and Bill was the model for Jack, like the protagonist of Bioshock. So it is interesting sometimes to go, he is exactly who I played. He looks exactly like the character I played. So, yeah, it's still every day I wake up and go to work like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. And I'm so happy. And I tell them that all the time. I'm like, this is the best job. <laughs> I'm, I'm just very, I'm just going to tell you how I feel. I love this job. You guys are great. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely don't hold back. Uh, I got very few um, of those vinyl pops, but my favorite one's the Big Daddy. That thing, mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to fight that guy. No, yeah, so I, the first time I played, I couldn't play because I was too scared. I would just like hide, pla <laughs> hide places from the Big Daddy. Like, ah, I don't want to fight him. He's so big. <laughs> Let's jump into the game that you're working on now with uh, with Amanda and Bill. Yeah, Romancelvania. So excited it got funded. The best. That was amazing. Amazing. We pulled off the remainder of the funding on the last day. Like, blows my mind. What's it about? So it's about Dracula finding love. Like, basically, I think he loses a deal with death, and now he has to be on a game show in date so it's like the bachelor <laughs> everything's about puns in this game it's very cheeky it's very funny monsters dating monsters you can like date different sexes you can date how you want you cannot you can just be friends you know it's all about your choice but i love it because i'm like i come from the horror world so i'm like it's all my classic monsters and they're all like partying together and 
forming relationships and fighting. And it's all really funny because Amanda is writing it and she's just an absolute genius at puns, like, and being funny and having like this romantic sort of lust, but also friendship. And she's just, she's like the fastest quick on her feet writer I've ever met. I've met a lot of writers from working on maps and working and she's the fastest, quickest thinker. So she was perfect to move from books to video games. I didn't know that she wrote books. That's it. What, what did she write? Uh, any genre specific? I or? think she wrote adult romance. I think so. And now she's working on adult fantasy novels. Like she's writing up some that sound amazing. And if she's trying to work on one with her agent. Very cool. I'm going to jump to uh, Andrew. He goes by the book dad. Um, oh, and by the way, if, for anyone that wants to check out that game, we're going to leave the link for it in the show notes. So check that out. Uh, it's pretty neat. And uh, it's really funny. It's all universal monsters, isn't it? From what I remember. Yes. Yeah, so it's werewolf and the mummy and like, basically all the classic monsters yes but we also have cthulhu but she's like a kawaii type girl which i love i think that we have a goth siren sort of mermaid so we're all kind of playing with what they want to be and who they are what they've been through um when drag comes and tries to date them or be friends with them (laughs) so brian i'm gonna read andrew's comment and then uh why don't you lead in with uh shane hawk's uh, question because they tie together so sure. uh andrew the book dad says just tell cat congrats for me on the children's book with cemetery gates and that ties in with oh okay that's that, that was quite the segue okay so uh shane says hi i'm shane hawk i wanted to ask cat <laughs> this your fifth book will be a middle-grade horror. I've told my agent I want to write middle-grade horror in the near future. Do you have any recommendations to read, perhaps lesser-known middle-grade uh, horror books? Any particular shout-outs? And he also says, congratulations on starting Jennifer Strange and the Red Gate. Oh, my gosh, Shane. Oh, my gosh, Andrew. You all are amazing. Like, thank you. I think my favorite thing is the horror book community on Twitter. Like, I keep wanting to quit Twitter because I'm like, ugh. But then the horror book community is just too awesome, so I can't leave. And I love you all, and you all, thank you for your questions. So, middle grade horror has been this thing I've flirted with doing for forever. I used to mentor it. Everyone's asking, when are you going to do it? Um, Jennifer Strange was almost middle grade, but it's too gory, and I wanted to keep the gore. So I decided I'm going to do a middle grade horror that's just meant to be one. And then I got another idea and another idea. So I technically have like four middle grade horror ideas. So I'm like, yes, this is going to be really fun. So I actually have all of my books right here beside me. So I wouldn't forget the names. So The Jumbies by Tracy Baptiste. Let's see. Where was the other one? Evangeline of the Bayou by Jane Eldridge. Sounds amazing. And it's basically monster hunting and the bayou and there's like seems like witches and stuff i'm like i'm all about that like anything southern gothic i am into um small spaces by katherine arden and i also picked up this one this is interesting 
Elizabeth and Zenobia by Jessica Miller. I'm a huge fan of anything by Stephen Bachman and Claire Legrand. Both of them are like the creepiest middle grade horror people. I love them both. They were the first people to ever work with me as an illustrator. So I owe my career to them, but also they're just the creepiest people. Like Claire wrote a story that scared me so bad. It was like about a little boy in the book. The book was Cabinet of Curiosity. So it's all short stories. So this actually isn't a full book, but it was about a little boy that was so rotten that on his birthday, he got a cake that looked like him and then he ate it and it was eating he was feeling all the bites as he was eating himself i was like oh my god like middle grade horror is very very special like it is a different type of horror that kind of cake eat like eating a cake that looks like you and you can feel the bites every time you bite into it it that sticks with you you know my other favorite is um the spindlers because that is some straight up adult horror that there was a kid who got replaced by spiders and she has to go save her brother. And his, she imagined that his chest was filled with this cavity of spiders. And I was like, that's an adult horror. Oh my God. Like middle grade horror, you could do this. And so I, I have totally changed my expectations of what I'm allowed to get away with. I just think I'm not allowed to get away with too much gore um that i'm gonna stay away from but i i hope shane that you write some really creepy middle grade horror because i think it's a space that you're just doing some nice things at a, at a good age where you want creepy you know like between 12 and 15 you're like yes monsters i want the scary campfire story i want that sort of thing and i love Paranorman, Coraline. Um, I love that kind of age and the things that you can do there. So it's going to be really interesting to sort of make that leap into it after Jennifer Strange and the Red Gate, which I'm writing right now, and it is completely complicated. So I think the middle grade horror is going to be a nice relief afterwards because the plot is much more straightforward. Tell us about your book. Oh, which one? Uh <laughs> The one you're illustrating with Cemetery Gates uh, Media. Oh, perfect. So that one I would not have gotten without Laurel Hightower. I just want to say that because I was offline. Laurel messaged me and went, Kat, I saw you've been taking a picture book class. You have to apply to this. And I was like, what? Hmm, okay, I'll, I'll go for it. So I have been taking this boot camp. It was a five-week course where you do homework every day and you turn assignments and it's like, tight, go, go, go. There's interviews, there's worksheets, there's sketchbook prompts every single day of the week for five weeks. And it was so intense. And I had decided to do the picture book class because my agent said, when are you going to do a picture book? Like, that's something I'd like to get into. I just had two kids. I think you can make some great creepy picture books. Is that something you're interested in? And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I would love that. What the heck is a picture book? How do you even pitch one? They have like barely any words. Like, what do you, I have no idea how to do that. And I debated and I debated, I found a class and I went, I don't have time for a boot camp. I got to work a job. Like that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. I don't know what to do. And then it got to the pandemic and I was in between books. I had just turned in my third book to my agent, which I've been hinting at is a um, Southern Gothic historical horror. 
said in the 90s. That's why it's historical. That makes me cry. Um, I had just finished that, turned it in, was waiting on notes. My agent had some life stuff going on. So I was like, just waiting. And I went, you know what? They offer the picture book class once a year. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. We're in the pandemic. I'm stuck at home. I, I don't know if I'd even be able to do this next year. We're doing it. And I loved it. I loved it. I had no idea that illustrating a picture book was kind of like doing a world map over and over and over. It's a two-page spread, full illustration. I was already doing maps like that, and I wanted to go and make the leap into doing full books, not just two pages. I wanted to do a whole book. So I went, okay, Laura, I'll try out for Cemetery Gates Media. That sounds really great. It's, they need creepy. They need kid-friendly. I can do both of those things. Um, so I went and sent in my portfolios. I sent in my super hardcore horror stuff, which is like the Jennifer Strange stuff, the black and white illustration I just did um, for Cosmology of Monsters by Sean Hamill, which is my favorite book last year. Um, I loved it so much I did fan art. I had put all that in one side and I said, I can do this. But I can also do this really cute lightning bug that I did for class that has like nothing to do with horror. And it was the picture book class that they liked. Um, Cemetery Gates Media loved that I had such variety that I could pull off really, really cute and then really, really terrifying. So they wrote me back like an hour later and said, hey, are you interested? So I went, I just was like, is this really happening? This is amazing. So I cannot believe I get to work on this. And then when I read the book, I went, oh my gosh, this is all tying back to Nightmare Before Christmas. Like my love, my very first love. I can't believe I get to do this. The mayor of Halloween goes missing. The mayor of Halloween goes missing. What? I have to illustrate that book. It sounded like the most perfect fit. And it's a lot of fun. I love that. It's got the same kind of plot, actually, as The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury, where the kids kind of have to save Halloween because their mayor is missing, and he's the mayor of all the holidays. So I think that it's going to be really good. I hope a lot of people buy it because I think there's a potential to do even more if the first one does well, since it's, there's a lot of holidays. So fingers crossed. I really hope everyone goes out and gets a copy this October for your kids, for yourself. Um, cause I'd love to illustrate more creepy books for children. I just think that would be a delight. I want a copy. For oh, boy. Yes, please. I'll sign it. If you want, I'll draw uh, something creepy. <laughs> huh? I would love that. So we'll talk later. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'll take you up please. on that as well. Absolutely. I love drawing creepy things for children. Would you like me to draw a monster? Here you go. Here's a fresh monster. I need to do like a class where I just like do a zoom or something and be like children draw monsters with me. It's really fun. <laughs> you know, if, if, seriously, if my boy's into that in a few years, we, we got, you know, we got a student yeah. for you. Yes. It's going to be like, put a beefy arm on him, like home star runner. <laughs> <laughs> I'm showing my age. I'll be like, let's put another beefy arm on him. And another yeah. beefy arm. <laughs> I haven't heard anyone mention Homestyle Wanna in the longest time. <laughs> I know. I am a huge nerd. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, what was that? Um, Battle Ground or. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
I used to watch. There was this one. I'm not saying look this up, but there's this one called Angry Naked Pat, and that was fucking weird. I'm like, that's. I'm a kid. I'm a. I'm like in middle school. I'm like, hey, that's my name. That's weird, but I can't stop watching this very fucked up cartoon. Um, right? Oh, the Flash days. Like that's what I first learned to animate on was Flash. Yep. Oh my god, I loved all of the animations so much back then. They were so bad, but so great both at the same time. I was just a fan. I, I, I'm not an animator myself, but I'm I really dig that stuff too. Um, let's talk about Sean Hamill. I love that guy and uh, Cosmology of Monsters. Um, that's a book I've recommended more than any other book ever. Uh, in the last two years, um, it was my favorite book of two years ago, 2019, I think. 2020, yeah, 2019. Uh, I'm only for his next book, but let's let's hear what you have to say about that book because I'm pretty sure I've talked to everyone I know about that book and uh, I want to hear what you have to say. I loved it so much, I didn't know Sean at all, and I just went to his DMs and I was like, Sean, Sean, I know you don't know me. Your book is great. <laughs> and we became friends um, because I kept yelling at him that his book was great. <laughs> like, that's how I find most of my friends. And I'm just like, hey, you, you're great. You're just really great. I just, you need to know that you wrote this book about monsters and then becoming a monster. And then it's romantic. And then it's just, there's a city. I don't want to spoil too much. It just, you wrote all the things that I wanted in a story and you just, naturally went to it then there was the haunted house like this family runs a haunted house it reminded me of um like the netflix show um the haunting of hill house i think i said that right yeah and i went oh i love it and i would see his tweets and i was like oh my god he's a nerd like me i'm so happy yay he plays video games like me yay i have to be friends with sean so i went and decided like I got to talk to him and tell him how great his work is because I need more Sean Hamill novels because not only are they weird, but they're just so beautiful. His writing is just gorgeous. And it goes into these parts for this family where it feels almost like this Gothic love story to monsters. I just, I need more books by him. I, uh, That's where I'm at. <laughs> I'm like, Sean, are you done with your book yet? When can you send that book to me? <laughs> I, uh, he was one of the first people. He was one of the first people that I talked to for being on season three uh, because I just I was like, I don't give a shit if you have an X book out, you're coming on out. And um, that book, after I read it. I think in my review, I wrote how it was like a love letter to Lovecraft and the weird uh, fiction genre. Um, I mean, whatever you guys say about Lovecraft, that's fine and probably is deserves. But like he made something special and um, Sean kind of pinpointed that with this dysfunctional family. And it covers what, like five decades? The way he does it is I'm like, God damn, dude, you're an architect. <laughs> <laughs> he really is though and it's so it felt like every note was in the right place that's what I found most interesting is it didn't feel like at any point there was a sour note for me like there were parts that really broke my heart and I cried when I read it and I don't really cry at books I really don't 
Like I can count on one hand how many books have made me cry. I cry at movies like so fast. I cry at everything. I laugh at everything. I'm scared. I have big reactions. So I'm the perfect person to bring to a movie, especially a horror movie, because I'll just be like, ah. <laughs> Even though I love horror movies, I'm like, ah. I'm the one who's like super scared. But with books, I don't cry at them. And I cried at his. Like there is a particular scene I don't want to spoil. I'm sure you know the one where I was like, this is just so heartbreaking. I, I can tell when I love a book because I'm, I'm like, grab my husband's arm and I'm like, I'm going to read this part out loud to you. Look how good he is. I'm mad at how good he is. And I would just read parts of Sean's book out loud. Like the entire time I was reading, I was just like, Michael, I'm so mad. Michael's my husband. Michael, this ride is just, it's so good. So good. Ah, oh, I want to do better. I can be better. <laughs> like, <laughs> I did that at the High Towers, um, Whispers, Whispers in the Dark. Uh, that was a few months after my boy was born, and it I like that. I don't know what it was, but like I cry at movies too. But I cried at everything like three or four months after my son was born, and I happened to read her book, and there's a scene at the very end, and. Uh, I read it to my wife and I'm like, it's so sad, but it's so good. <laughs> so you're one of those people too, who's like, I'm going to read this book out loud to you right now. Like, I have to tell you, you have to suffer with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> when I really like a book, I'm like, no, Michael, you're experiencing this book in real time with me. <laughs> <laughs> How about we talk about Jennifer Jennifer Strange. Let's hear about the first book and where we're at at the moment with that sequel. So, um, should I sum up what the first one's about, I guess? Like, yeah. Okay. So, Jennifer Strange is my idea of trying to write sort of a gory, campy novel where the girls are all the heroes and they're fighting against ghosts and demons. I want to contribute something to that genre, but make it girl heavy and also queer. Like I really wanted to say something with that. Like, I know we have supernatural of the brothers. I know we have all these different things that have done it before, but I was like, I haven't really seen where girls are going through a splattery book, teen girls, sisters or family. And I wanted to create a family drama with ghosts because ghost stories are my favorite horror stories. So Jennifer has this really unfortunate gift called the Sparrow of Summoning. And what she can do is basically what do ghosts and demons want most in the world? They want to cross over. They want to be alive. Jennifer can give that to them with the touch of her hand. So if a ghost floats by her and she touches one, she can give it a body. She can just bring it back to life with a demon I work with the rules that demons can only possess to cross over because they're not really ever people. They were never were. Um, so if it's possessing a host and she can give the demon a body, it rips right out of the host. So it became very messy and very bloody for a YA book. <laughs> so Jennifer gets this gift and finds out every generation of women in her family have had this not only does she have it but it happens in pairs where one is i can give you a body one is i can take it away so her sister has the opposite gift she can banish 
She can send ghosts and demons back over, but the problem is both of their powers have a cost. Every time they use it, a mark eats their body. A gold mark for Jennifer, uh, a silver mark for her older sister Liz. So, yeah, it's great that Liz can banish them if Jennifer happens to summon them, but both of them are getting slowly pulled over to the other side. Everything is equivalent exchange. So a lot of this book starts to lean into dark fantasy. So it's got this interesting back and forth between horror and dark fantasy where I feel like I'm dipping my toes into both. But it's most definitely horror from just the splattery nature of it. So what I decided was I knew exactly what the plot was for book one. I actually didn't know the plots of books two and three until I had written the first book and then published it. And I had to sit down and go, okay, we're writing the sequel now. I had always intended for it to be more. I mean, it was a TV pilot. But the structure of what the TV pilot was going to be was very different than the books. Like, the book one could happen over a season, you know? So I went, all right, what are readers going to have the biggest questions about? And to me, they were, where the heck does this power come from? Like, why is she cursed with this? Why is everybody in her family cursed with this? And there's a rival family that wants her power. Like, they, they're they basically like the Warrens, except they're called the Blackwells, and they're really well-known in Savannah, Georgia. Everybody goes to them if they have a haunting. They take their haunted furniture to, like, get them cleaned. And then after a scandal with the family, their shop closes. Um, so, so Jennifer has a run-in with the son of this family, Marcus Blackwell. And they're completely at odds because Marcus has been raised to hate the sparrows because the sparrows bring destruction wherever they go. They kill people. They hurt everyone. And Marcus feels like we're here to help people get rid of ghosts and help ghosts cross over to banish demons. And these two sisters have this power that just messes everything up, basically kills everyone in their path. Then they're out of control. The power is out of control. They cannot control when it happens. And if they happen to touch somebody, they could kill them. So they get put at odds throughout the first book because there's just a wake of death in Jennifer's path. Like everywhere she goes while she's trying to figure out how do I stop the sparrow curse? How do I get rid of it? So that's the other thing book two is going to focus on is where does her power come from? And does she really want to get rid of it? Does she really want to? Because at the end of the first book, I won't spoil anything, but she loses someone so close to her it forces Jennifer into a choice. The choice in book two is I can get rid of my power and let the person I love stay at rest, like, you know, be at peace. But I don't want to let them go. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to let this person go. If I keep my power, my power to resurrect, if I find his spirit, I can bring him back to life. I can get this person who means more than anything to me back. But the more she has her power, the more it corrupts, the more powerful she gets and the worse the power gets. So that's what book two is about. And it's also, she has angered a certain party of people because someone ended up dead. And now those people are hunting her down because Jennifer's power is technically half demonic. She's a half demon. Her sister's a half demon. Her, all the women are half demons. So this family wants to hunt Jennifer and her sister and everyone down 
because they're demonic. So book two is going to be really interesting because I set up a lot of stuff in Jennifer Strange book one. I didn't answer. And I didn't answer because I knew I was going to answer in book two, like all the answers would be in book two. And then book three is kind of the natural conclusion of Jennifer's choice, her choice to do I accept this power or do I get rid of it? And the end of that choice that she's got to make in book two. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm intrigued by that. I'm sitting back. I just want to hear the whole thing now. Um, right, right. Yeah, I, like, yeah, I, I, I like love it so much. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now that came out last July. How's the reception to book one been? The book one reception was honestly startling to me because I was in a pandemic and back in March, I was like, oh no, I have this book coming out in July. And my poor editor's house burned down. Just burned down. And I went, are we going to still put out Jennifer Strange? I mean, like, dude, it's cool if your, ha- your house burned down. Like, we don't have to put this book out right now. He said, no, no, no. Like, we already postponed it for a year because I had health problems. He didn't want to let me down. Like, John McElvain, who runs Haverhill House, was like, no, we're putting out your book. I want you to have this dream come true, despite what I have going on. So it was amazing that we still put it out at all, but I had to learn a lot of things on the fly by myself. I had to learn how to get a trade review. I had to learn how to put it on that galley. I had to learn how to get um, reviews. And I got these amazing blurbs. Like the blurbs were insane because I was not expecting to get one from Paul Tremblay. <laughs> like it was not that, that was not on my list of things I thought would happen. Or Amy Lukovics. Amy Lukovics is my favorite YA horror author. Um, besides Courtney Alameda and Hilary Monaghan, those are like my favorite YA horror people. And I just went, I can't believe she likes my book too. Like Daughters of the Devils was what made me go, oh my God, I can be gross. Like, yay. Hillary made me feel like, oh my God, I can be gross. So I did not, I, I didn't know what was happening when, like Jennifer McMahon, who wrote The Winter People, was like, I love your book. And it's just started to blow my mind that all these people went, I really like your stuff. And I'm like, no, no, you don't. No. So most of the time I was I was at home, stuck at home in a pandemic. Like I have no idea what's going on, if the book is doing well. I don't know if people like it. Um, and then it got the attention of the wonderful, amazing, like Nightworms team and Sadie and Ashley and they were like let's put on a book party and they did a really nice book party for me and their whole group read it posted on Instagram they gave me such nice honest reviews I was like this is the best like the reception has been way more than I thought for my little like indie horror YA book in the middle of the world being on fire so I was like that's actually pretty awesome like that so many people supported me despite the horror that they had going on in their lives. And I just felt like there were people who didn't like it. There were people who liked it. There were people who didn't know what to do with it because it was so different than a lot of the typical YA horror being very gory and very campy. And they were like, I I was just so grateful. I was thinking the whole time, like you all are going through this pandemic and you're actually giving me the time to like read my book. Thank you. Like, thank you so much. Cause it's really hard to concentrate anything right now besides what's going on in the world and the fact you took the time to read me and like knew about me that was insane 
that anyone even knew who I was. I was saying the whole time, like, how do you even know who I am? Like, I'm hustling over here. I know I'm putting in the work over here. But like the fact you know about me, I felt really this deep gratitude because there's so much else happening. That's way more important right now. Like, thank you for even trying my first book. You said something about a TV pilot. Is that something you just had in mind? Something you were working toward? What can you tell us about that? (laughs) So I wanted to be, I wanted to go into screenwriting. I wanted to be a screenwriter first. And then I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to go talk to my professor. How do I really do this? How do I break in? And he had worked on Hill Street Blues, JAG. He'd written real professional TV shows. He's like, how do I break into the industry? And he said, you got two ways. You move out to LA and you hustle it and you work as a waiter and you work waiting tables and you try and get in and you find a way in or go publish a book and see if the book gets adapted and then you can write the script or help write the script. And I was like, I kind of like the second option better, especially because it was when the job market crashed in 2008, 2009 was when I graduated. And I was like, there's no way I'm getting a job in LA right now. I can't even get a job in Atlanta right now. Like that's not happening. So I went, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to try publishing. I always wanted to write books um, and give that a shot. So I decided let's turn Jack for Stranger to a novel. But I didn't do it. I didn't do it because I was scared. There was a period where I was really scared. And I was like, I don't know anything about publishing. I don't know what I'm doing. And then when I gave birth to my son, like the day I gave birth to my son, I looked at my husband and said, I don't know why I was scared. I gave birth. I can do anything. I'm going to go do it right now. And so I spent my three months maternity leave just like holding my son in my lap and like typing and writing all of Jennifer Strange, the book. And then I got my first agent um, when he was six months old. So I went, I was querying it by three months, like when he was three months old. So it's been, it's been a while. Like I've been working on Jennifer Strange and it finally came out about 10 years at this point. Um, and my favorite thing in the world is it did happen. Like I ended up getting a film agent right after Jennifer Strange came out. Cause there were some people going, are the rights available? And I had to get a film agent to answer that question of if the rights were available. So I wrote up the entire story Bible of Jennifer Strange for my film agent, which is why I know what happens. It's really funny. Like you go, I don't know what's going to happen. Then suddenly someone asks you like, all right, turn the story Bible right now. I need every term. I need every character. I need every demon. I need everything that ever happens and all the rules go. Turn in right now. You have a week. So I wrote the whole thing. (laughs) I totally asked my friends for help. Like, please help me workshop this fast. Um, but I, I got done, I got turned in. Um, and then my film agent's working on shopping it around and that's up to her. That's what she does best. So I'm going to go off and write my other books. When you say a week, do you mean that literally? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> even yeah, even the whole story Bible in like a week. Um, And then I asked her for a week extension because I actually got some really good notes. And I told her about the notes and said, this is the feedback I'm going to do. Give me one more week. And she said, okay. And I turned that around. That's impressive as hell. I'm I'm thinking like even, you know, taking the week off the day job and just, you know, committing to 12 hour days. I can't, I can't imagine, you know, Pat, I'm dragging you into this because we, 
we wrote, um, you know, it's it's unfinished right now, but we wrote uh, a three book series. It's about sitting around 160,000 words. And I'm thinking if somebody said, look at that and turn it into, you know, make a Bible in a week. I couldn't do it. I I can't imagine how how you pulled that Dude, off. Our, but our, big props to you. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's like we have a huge fuck. It, it's like Lord of the Rings if if Irish mythology was heavy in that series. I don't know if that's a fair comparison. Well, with Jennifer Strange Are you downplaying Jennifer... Cat's book. Nope. <laughs> that definitely came off that way. Yeah. Nope. Shut up, Pat. Go ahead, Cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably not like the equivalent of an adult fantasy. That is probably going to be a very thick Bible. But this one was. 25 pages long of how many terms are in Jennifer Strange, how many rules, how many characters. Um, in the first book, I think there's maybe five characters. And in the second, there's like 12 to 15 characters. It's going to be a lot bigger. So there's starting to be a lot of complexity of trying to figure out explaining. And it has to be skimmable, like bullet points, very fast, very simple. So it's not the same sort of Bible we would think of. Like if we're a writer and we're making a story Bible for our reference, this is more like I'm a network executive. I have five seconds to read this and skim it. So that was easy to write in a week. Like that, uh, something skimmable, something like what's the basics. I just need the basics that I could do. That makes sense. That, that makes a lot more sense than what me and Brennan were probably yeah, yeah. thinking. I, like I'm writing the actual outline right now. I'm going through every chapter is like a paragraph this big, you know, it's huge. My fingers are all the way wide just for one chapter. And that's, that's going to take me maybe a week to do that. I think, I don't know. I have to turn it in by Tuesday. So probably it'll take me the weekend. Good luck. I'm really fast. If I know what I'm doing, I can write like 2000 words an hour. I just like go. Nice. Wow. I'm so I'm like, I got let's go. We're gonna sit down, we're gonna write, we're in the flow. Brendan, you wanted we you know, we don't really have to ask any up, upcoming projects. We kind of covered that. But do you want to jump to current reads or you got anything else? Well yeah, Kat, if there's any other upcoming projects that we didn't cover that you want to throw out. Or did we get everything? I think we got everything other than the secret books. Like the books like I've working on right now um because technically yeah like shane mentioned earlier in this question i'm actually on my fifth book i wrote jennifer strange then i wrote a book called ocean madness which is my sort of lovecraftian book because I, I love that title really love the shadow over insmith and ocean madness is about a seafood chef fighting fish monsters <laughs> It's the best. It landed my agent um, right now. Um, I want that in my brain. By the it's way, so, it's so good. Like if I could just write YAB movies, I'd be happy. Like <laughs> so. Then I wrote um, the third book, which is the urban legend book. It's called Mercy, and it's set in the southeast across North Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. Hmm. And it's got an urban legend kind of along the lines of It Follows. Um, that's how I, I 
was very inspired by it falls. I was like, I want to write my own urban legend. I want to do that. But I wanted to be like a forest God. You know, I love that trope. I love that. We go into the woods and there's a God of the woods. I love the ritual, midsummer, all that kind of thing. It's like, I'm going to do my version, but make it clear. That was a good example. Mm. And two women in love that shouldn't be. So it's kind of fantasy. It's kind of horror. I love that middle between the two. And then I have like three middle grade horror ideas and then two adult horror ideas. And I've written all of them up, like in case anyone ever asks. I'm like, I've got pitches. We've got pitches for other things I want to do. Because I feel like from my TV days, you want to always have something where it's like, you always want to have a bunch of other pitches. I don't believe in hanging all of my hopes on one thing. All my hopes aren't in selling Jennifer Strange as a TV show. I'm like, no, no, no. I got more stories to tell. Like if that one's not working, because we've seen a bunch of stuff and they're supernatural, you know, we have supernatural. Then what I want to do is just have other stuff. Always have other stuff. Never get married to one thing because you never know if somebody's going to say, oh, I like your writing. What else you got? I'll be like, well, I have this one. I have this one, this one. Um, the one I'm going to do for middle grade horror is set in the 1920s. So I'm doing research on the 1920s for that. And it involves demons and pickpockets and hotels. So I'm very excited. I like those first two. It's just so such interesting. Uh, uh, I, I can't think of a better word than like picking like things out of a hat uh, <laughs> with the pickpockets. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. That one's going to be a fun middle grade horror. I, I can't wait. I sent all my pitches to a couple of my critique partner friends and they were like, no, the pickpocket one, the 1920s pickpocket one do that and i was like okay so i'm gonna draw everybody in this book <laughs> in full roaring 20s attire <laughs> oh absolutely because there's a bunch of monsters and things in that so i'm like i'm gonna draw all these designs because you know good to have maybe i'll illustrate it maybe i won't maybe i'll have character cards with it who knows are there any, are there any uh mobster <laughs> monsters there should be. That's a good idea. Now that's going in the book. <laughs> See? Good ideas. <laughs> Look, we'll make a good team. Pat and Cat. Like a, <laughs> like a like a bad name for a, a magician team or some something from the twenties, you know? Okay. Uh moving on. <laughs> hey, real quick, before uh before we jump into what are you reading? Uh we mentioned uh Andrew, the book dad earlier. Uh, who runs a site called Horror Oasis. And I'm bringing it up because, uh, Kat, you've mentioned a couple times uh, that uh, some of your books are, you you referred to them as queer horror. And uh, Andrew is currently running uh, design right now where he's selling Make Horror Gay AF uh, shirts, sweatshirts, uh, buttons, uh, stickers, notebooks, everything with a hundred percent of the profits going to uh trans lifeline so i just want i wanted to shout that out um anybody who's interested in picking up some of that merchandise uh horroroasis.com yeah excellent i'm uh, so glad you shouted that out because i was shared it on all my social media today like please support this because it's a great cause it's a cool design it I is, love yeah. what Andrew's doing over at Horror Oasis, trying to build community, and it's a great space that's just getting started. So I feel like 
you know, if you're in horror and you want to join, there's a Facebook group. Um, Andrew's really active on social media. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of like-minded friends who like the creepy things like we do. Yeah, um, that's why we run his commercial for the foreseeable future, because it's kind of like, you know, we want, we support him. I think it's a good thing. Um, yeah, let's talk about current reads. Kat, what are you currently reading? I have all of them next to me. I have like 10. <laughs> so I recently, um, like three years ago this June, had heart failure. I had tachycardia. So my heart enlarged and we've been trying to get smaller so that it would work properly. And when my heart function went down to 10%, I lost the ability to read, which was crazy. So I put out Jennifer Strange, not really knowing how it was going to do because I had difficulty reading at the time that I wrote it. So the difference between Jennifer Strange 1 and 2 is going to be huge because I got my memory back in the past year. I decided I was going to spend the pandemic getting my ability to read back. And the first book I finished was Alma Katsu's The Deep. Loved that book about the Titanic, haunted ghost stories. So good. Alma's incredible talent. Like, I love The Hunger. So I was absolutely on board for The Deep. I haven't read her next book, which is the spy one, but it looks really, really good because she's actually real CIA so she knows what she's talking about I'm like that looks so good um then I read Cosmology of Monsters I read uh, uh Grady Hendrix's book The Southern Guide to Slaying Vampires which I can say having lived in, North- in South Carolina is entirely accurate except for the vampires so oh my god that was really weird to read because it was so close to home at in the early 90s you know it's not that way now but it was in the early 90s Right now, I am devouring Ring Shout, and I'm going to say his name wrong, Pete DeJelle Clark. Love, love. And I had, saw he has a book out, a full book about the Jin. that looks amazing. He's just an incredible writer. I want to read everything that he's done. I'm also reading Josh Mallerman's A House at the Bottom of the Lake. I a House at the Bottom of a Lake. Oh, man, I love Josh. I met him randomly and didn't know I met him at a world horror convention in Atlanta back when it was world horror and the Stokers. I ran the young adult track and I was selling my art there. And Josh came up to me and he's like, I love your art. Like here, here's my book. I'm going to sign it for you. And I'm going to buy your art. And I was like, thanks man. And he handed me a signed copy of bird box. I had no idea who he was. (laughs) I love Josh. Um, Real quick on Josh. Yeah. He's just like one of the nicest people. And at the end of his episode in season one, he was just saying, he's like, you know, you, you two have a great voice. Like they blend together real nice. And I'm like, thanks. No one's ever said that to us actually before. <laughs> he's always so nice. <laughs> he really is. He's so nice. Like one time um, he put out that mini series during the pandemic. And I said, man, I'd love to do fan art for that. And he DMs me and he's like, would you really? Would you really? I'd be so honored. I was like, what are you talking about? You're Joshua. (laughs) Okay, I'll draw some art for you. And I did some fan art for him. I still need to send him the original. I promised him I would. But he loved it. He's just the nicest guy. And he's just, you know, he's got no ego about it. He's just genuine. Um, Yeah, the other book I'm reading, House of Hollow, Crystal Sutherland. 
The ones we're meant to find, John Hay. The other middle grade I mentioned, I'm also reading. Um, a Wilder Magic by Juliana Brandt. And I picked up this on a whim. It's the zoologist's guide to the galaxy about like what other animals would be like in other planets. I'm still fascinated by physics and science. So at some point, I want to write a sci-fi. I got an idea for a middle grade science fiction drive-in movie. I want to do um, that movie, but a book. I always think in terms of like, it could be a movie. It could be a book. It could be a script. I don't know. It could be all the things. It could be everything. It could be our project. Be anything, yeah, great. Uh, I, I like the idea of calling it a uh, drive-in book because it, it does bring to mind exactly the type of like reading experience you're trying to convey, <laughs> right? Like, I really want to do a book that's about like during the pandemic, we've had the surge of like the drive-in coming back, and I still regret I didn't get to go see the Evil Dead at the drive-in because that would have been amazing. At that time, I was like, oh, I'm high risk. I have heart failure. I don't want to go to a drive-in, but I want to go see Evil Dead, and I'm still sad I couldn't go. I hope they bring it back. I hope they do, because I would still be there, like, first person. Let's watch Evil Dead at drive-in. That sounds awesome. Fingers uh, crossed for you. Brennan, Thank I'm, I'm, I'm going to go second for once. Um, okay. Because the thing I want to beat you to this. So I recently just started V Castro's uh, Queen of the C Cicadas. It's, you know, if you know V Castro, um, expect some pretty brutal stuff, character driven. A lot of Latinx uh, influence goes into uh, her books. Um, I'm, I'm like halfway through Coco by Peter Straub. It's it's fucking massive. It's just a big. And then I, I look at the other two books, and like the last one is like the biggest. I, I listen to the audio versions, and uh, it's almost thirty hours long for the third book, so it's pretty big. Um, Kat, you would probably appreciate this. Stephen <gasps> Hawking's. I got wow. this. Wow. It's uh, the illustrate uh, the illustrated a brief history of time. I keep it next to my computer. And then the universe in a nutshell. Um, oh, I, got, I, I love got this, it. I got this for like five bucks at a thrift store. Um, yeah, that guy that guy was very smart. And uh, I want to hear what he has to say about the universe. Because I, too, am very fascinated with uh, physics. I, I love astrophysics. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't understand a lot of things he says, but uh, I like to think that I could pick up one percent of the words he uses, and and it's I like them. <laughs> yeah, I love speculating about space. Like I think if I had chosen a different career, it would have been physics, but space, like anything astrophysics, would have been what I wanted to study. I even asked, like, if there was a program at my university if I could do astrophysics. And they said, no, you'd have to transfer schools. They didn't have it at, I went to Western Carolina University and they had a physics minor, but no major. And I would have lost a lot of my credits. And, you know, my parents only had so much money for school. So it was like, you got to go in four years. Like if you switch schools, it would be more schooling and you'd have to pay for it. So I went, okay. So that ended up closing that path, but I still like to read it. I still like read Carl Sagan and books like, the zoology one I picked up, like, what is life like on other planets? And I've been so into all the alien news. Like, yes, I knew it. I was a kid in the 90s. We were all about aliens. It was X-Files time. 
I was like, yes, aliens. <laughs> I just like reading about uh, geniuses, you know, Ben Franklin or Einstein or, uh, like I said, Leonardo da Vinci. They're just fascinating. And uh, like I said, I went to school for computer electronics, and all these equations are by dudes that created in you know, three centuries before. I'm like, huh, they didn't even have a computer back then. They are smart. <laughs> no, yeah, they didn't have it to, like, calculate something on the fly for you, you know? They had to just figure it out. Yeah. It's crazy to me how yeah, intelligent yeah. they were. And uh, the, one of the most fascinating things I learned uh, when I was going to school was Adolf Lovelace, who was the first computer um, programmer, uh, did that in the 1800s for a mechanical computer. It was a computing machine. Uh, it was like one of the punch cards for, I think, for like work, but still technically a coder or programmer. I don't know what the difference is. Not that bright with that stuff. But anyways, uh, Brennan, what are you reading? Uh, you're right. You did beat me with uh, Queen of the Cicadas. Uh, yeah, and, and what I would add to that is I love the way she's, uh, she structured this book. So it jumps back and forth between like uh, first person in the modern day and the 1950s, um, kind of like a third person retelling. Um, and the modern day, you kind of see this... Uh, uh, urban legend, almost kind of like a Bloody Mary type story. Uh, everybody's, you know, kind of discussing it and talking about the origins. And then, you know, V takes you back and walks you through kind of the firsthand account. And it, a lot of it revolves around like, you know, very, very poor treatment of like migrant workers and, um, the way that she kind of sets up the origin of the urban legend and kind of foreshadows, uh, where it's going from there this is this is a special book this is a really cool book and i think people are really going to enjoy it when it comes out um the other one and i just finished this up today is uh daniel barnett's city of blood he's been releasing uh his nightmare land series a book at a time for probably about a year now um and it it's interesting because he's i think he says it's going to be about 10 or 12 volumes uh but he's almost like doing it in halves like this is part five i think he's doing a big part six and he keeps comparing it to like a season finale so you know it's kind of a big uh explosive game changer and then you know the rest of the series kind of wraps up the overall arc um and this dude can write like the prose in here every time i you know get to pick up a new volume of it is I, I just I'm blown away by the first chapter. I like it's like it's almost like I forget just how good at prose uh, Daniel is. Uh, so shout out to him because this is a really cool series doing some, you know, gigantic doorstopper po post-apocalyptic uh, fiction that's not really like any of the other ones you've read before. That's awesome. Um, I love all of that. I got to yeah. pick that up. Yeah, you, you should actually I'll throw it out right now. Um, I don't know if this will be the case by the time this episode airs, but uh, you can get the first four volumes of that series for 99 cents a pop on Kindle right now. No way. That's awesome. OK, I got to get that. <laughs> I meant to say earlier, uh, Kat, is that you remind like the way that you talk about art and, you know, engineering or whatever the site whatever the science is, it, it just reminds me of another genius that I've really been fascinated by for years is Steve Jobs. Um, just the way that he, 
you know, he changed like seven major industries from running Pixar and Apple as CEO both at the same time, um, changed both of those industries, the store industry, the cell phone, uh, music industry. All that takes those two worlds or, or they don't work. And um, I think that the way you think is going to really it, it makes me and I'm sure Brennan very excited to see what you're going to have in store and book format or be it video game or the little time we've talked. I'm, I just want to get some of your stuff in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I am so excited to share all the crazy ideas I have because I I love horror people like this is such a novelty to me because I grew up in the South and I didn't really know anyone else that was into this. So I feel like I'm just having a ball meeting all these people that like the creepy stuff like I do, who like to be scared, who like to be grossed out, who like that stuff, like monsters, like ghosts and demons. And I'm like, it's so nice to be able to meet other people who like this, like yeah. to the level yeah. that I always have. And when I moved up to New England, I was like, oh, my God, there's so many of you. I can, like, throw a rock and hit a horror writer. Like, <laughs> this is awesome. I, I felt so at home. Um, so I'm really glad that we've met through Twitter and connected. And it's been wonderful. Like, it's a good space. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brennan, I'd like to know your answer. But growing up myself in Bridgewater, I... Uh, I was always the kid that was into horror and weird shit, and my mom wasn't into it, but that's how she got to spend time with me when I was 11 and 12 by going to Circuit City and buying, because they had the best selection in my area for uh, Freddy or Jason or Michael Meyer films and uh, or Hellraiser, and um, I didn't know anyone until Twitter, really. I knew a few people that were like, oh, I like horror movies, but I, I didn't know really even 1% of the extent that I do now. So it's thanks to Twitter. So, you know, it's got its ugly sides, but you can curate it. Yeah, that has really helped a lot. And I think just popping in and uh, having worked in social media, I tend to click on the things so it'll give me the things I want. So if there's an ad, I do want to see like Bones Coffee, which makes wonderful Army of Darkness and Jaws Coffee. <laughs> I click it every time. So I'm like, yeah, show me more of that and less socks, please. Just more horror coffee, please. And so I know to do that. So I'll be over somewhere else and be, you know, oh, the ad followed me. Good. Good job, ad. <laughs> so I totally reversed. Because <laughs> uh, I used to write commercials, so I know how they work. I know what it wants. It wants to figure out what I like and then show it to me. I'm like, okay, I'll just keep clicking what I like. Yes, I like the gothic clothes. Yes, I like that coffee. Only show me that. So my Instagram is the most perfectly curated space now of everything I like. And my husband will look at it and be like, I'm so jealous of your feed. I'm like, just keep clicking what you like and it won't show you the garbage. It's trying to figure out what you want. If you don't click it, it won't know. And he's like, oh, that's the secret. <laughs> Speak, speaking of that coffee company, they uh, that's who Silver Shamrock uses for their pretty sweet package of uh, books and coffee. All you got to do is go to silvershamrockpublishing.com. Click on the, I believe, store tab. Speaking of stores, why don't you go to deadheadspace.com? There is a store tab. You can get my uh, ugly mug on a coffee mug or uh, on a mask. 
you know, for Halloween or during the plague. Uh, <laughs> you you got to come up with a better sales pitch than that. I look. You can have no, no. You can have my face on your face. Want to keep, um, you know, and it, it will help you with the social distancing. <laughs> That's good. Or it could be like, my wife doesn't like that. You might. <laughs> My face on your face. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's the best Boom, thing. you just sold 20 masks. <laughs> <laughs> you did. You just watch it. The numbers are going to go ding, ding, ding. <laughs> she, she's the one that runs this store, so she asks. She'll be like, That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people follow you, Kat? So they can follow me at Kat. M Scully on Twitter and Instagram. I post my cute kidlet art over on Cat Scully Art. I'm most active on Instagram because that's where I post my art. Um, but I just post a lot of ramblings on Twitter. That's the best place to just, like talk to me, get to know me, say hi. I always check my mentions. I don't scroll the feed so I can get work done because the feed is very distracting. The feed makes it very hard to to write my books and draw my art. But if you write me, I tend to try and write you back. Perfect. I agree. The feed uh, sucks you in big time. So oh, and you can get my book signed at Copper Dog Books. Don't go to Amazon. Amazon is still shipping out blank copies of my hardcover, which oh. has been a huge fight through the pandemic. Like I'm, they were sending out blank books. Like, it'll look normal on the outside, but if it doesn't have the Paul Tremblay blurb on the cover, that's the wrong one. That's the misprint that they've been shipping out to people. So ask for your money back, fight Amazon, because they're refusing to do anything about it. But I would just go to Barnes & Noble, go to your indie. They're going to have the real deal. This is an Amazon printing problem. Um, So yeah, definitely get it there. Copper Dog Books in Beverly, Massachusetts. I will sign books there. And the hardcover is limited, and it has a special jacket design. So if you open it up, it says, as above, so below, inside the book. And each of the three are going to have a special hidden message on the inside of the book. Because I designed them, so I know what, what goes on. I did my own cover. I did the whole thing. So I did some special like little Easter eggs with the cover design. That's awesome. Um, Brennan, we're going to cover final thoughts, final thoughts. What do you got, buddy? Uh, my first final thought is I don't think I'm more than 40 minutes away from Beverly. I might have to make my first trip to a bookstore and like, you know, oh, it's been a while, well over (laughs) a year. Um, that's, that's, that's tempting. Um, the other thing is, I'm I'm definitely going to be thinking of you in October. I uh, I will definitely take you up on uh, sign books for uh, for the boys here. Um, I think they would really love that. That seems right up their alley. Uh, my older one, who I mentioned earlier, Dallas. Um, I have him working through uh, scary stories to tell in the dark right now. Um, just yeah, I, I picked it up used because I'm like, you know what? I read this when I was your age. I think you're going to absolutely love it and. He will sit there and read it with his brother. Um, what, what's the one that, where is my toe? They'll chant at each other. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. Where is yeah. my toe? They had that in the movie too. I love the movie adaptation. I'm I excited see it, for the but... sequel. 
Uh, so by the time that book comes out in October, my, my boy Phil's going to be almost two. So I guess that's a pretty good time to get him started. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. That's that's the perfect age. Oh, and they we just announced this today. Chris Golden just announced this. We are going to have, if you're near Massachusetts or New England, our convention at the Haverhill Library is coming back, the Merrimack Valley Halloween Book Festival. And we have a lot of big horror authors that come. Brian Keane just announced today he's coming with Mary San Giovanni. We have more guests coming up. I'm on the planning committee for it. I actually did the logo for the Merrimack Valley. So if you see the pumpkin head, that was me. Um, but I'm hopefully going to be selling copies of the children's book, The Mayor of Halloween is Missing. At my table, along with my art and some merchandise, I usually sell bags like with the Merrimack Valley logo on it. I have T-shirts on my website. So definitely come in October. It's going to be nice to have conventions again, October 9th in Haverhill, Massachusetts. I am going to be there. Brian and I, we're going to meet up with a couple friends uh, the last time it was supposed to be live. That was the first time we met each other in person. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it, COVID. <laughs> this year. This year, October. Yep. Uh, any final thoughts, sounds, noises, whatever, Kat? <laughs> um, definitely check out Romancelvania. It's going to, I think we're still going to have it come out in 2022. Um, you can follow us at the Deep End Games. We're all active on Twitter. You can follow. Um, Game on Gardner is my boss, the creative director, Bill. And then Amanda Gardner, I believe it's just under her name. Uh, but Bill's not as active as I am, but he's on there every day. He does like check messages. So you can say hi and uh, support the game would be great. We have uh, the Deep End Games on Instagram as well. And check out Jennifer Strange. I'd love to have more readers. I'd love to have people tell me if you liked it, because one of the unfortunate things about the pandemic is... You don't get to hand sell as much and meet people. So the only way I know if you've read it and you've liked it and you've checked it out is if you tweet me or you tag me or you say hi on Instagram and be like, I love this book. So if you do like it, give me a shout out. I'd love to know because I have no other reference of knowing if anyone's reading my book. So that would be my final thought is if you like a book, tell an author, especially right now. All of us new debuts have no reference if our books are doing well. That's perfect. Uh, my final thought is I had a blast talking to you. We've talked a while about you coming on. Obviously, we want you back whenever we can manage. Uh, and thank you. Thank you so much for having me on here. It's been so much fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we had a blast. We're definitely going to want you back on. And we appreciate your almost two hours of time and listeners next week. That is uh, next Monday, this upcoming Monday, episode 93 with Vic LeMay Mist. We are going to be talking about her Nocturnal series. She is a Icelandic author. She's She's got a lot of great stories, and I'm sure a lot of other stories that Brent and I aren't aware of, so please stay tuned for that. And You have many choices with podcasts. Thank you for picking us. Deadhead Space.